Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, defence is to get a budget boost of £16.5 billion over four years. What should the money be spent on and what impact will it have? A multi-year settlement is exactly what we need because what we need is we don't just need to maintain the kit we've got. We actually need to upgrade and in that upgrade we can transform Britain. The Defence Secretary sets out his priorities and we get reaction from the former Chief of the General Staff, General Lord Dannett. We ask what could happen in Afghanistan if plans to draw down US troops go ahead. Britain's former ambassador to Kabul joins us. A lot of those troops rely on American uh, logistic support, security. Uh, so uh, it may mean that some of the outlying NATO troops may have to withdraw. And we hear from RFA Argus supporting hurricane relief efforts off the coast of Honduras. It's quite a low-lying area. There was some flooding. Uh, but because it's low-lying, the housing in the area all appears to be built on stilts. So they're used to flooding, they're used to storm surges, and that has definitely helped them in some ways. BFBS, the forces station. Set rev. Defence is to get what the government says is the biggest budget increase since the end of the Cold War. An extra £16.5 billion will be given to the Ministry of Defence to be spent over the next four years. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, says some defence capabilities will be let go, but there will be investment in new areas. It'll enable us to, to modernise uh, by investing in the new domains that currently pose quite a threat to our way of life. So space, uh, where we are becoming increasingly dependent, but also therefore increasingly vulnerable. You know, we rely so much on satellites, for example, both for our military communication, but on our day-to-day, -day, you know, everything from cash points rely on uh, a, a space sort of coordination to GPS to everything else, and also in the areas of cyber, because our adversaries are investing heavily in that and are using sort of what we'd call the sub-threshold area, to constantly already attack us, uh, and we need to make sure we defend against that. Number 10 says the announcement is the first conclusion to come from the integrated review on the UK's foreign defence development and security policy. Ben Wallace says the extra funding will help create jobs in the defence industries. By committing to this extra money, and the 16.5 billion is extra money, mainly in what we call the capital programme, so mainly in changing or updating our equipment, that will create uh, a significant number of new jobs uh, on a long-term basis. And that's the key, long-term and new skills. Well, our reporter James Hurst has been looking at the details and joins me now. James, what exactly does this mean in spending terms in relation to the current budget? We are looking at about a 10% increase in the defence budget. It's pretty significant. I mean, this year's defence budget, just shy of £40 billion. £16 billion over four years, that's about £4 billion extra a year. Importantly, this comes on top of the government's existing commitment to increase defence spending by half a percent above inflation. But perhaps more important than the extra money itself is this is giving defence certainty. This is special treatment for defence in Whitehall. It's got a four-year committed budget where most departments are only getting one year. But there's already a black hole in the MOD's current spending plans, isn't there? Yes, they prefer the term affordability gap, but the MOD's own figures put that gap 
over this four-year period at about £7.7 billion. That's according to the most recent National Audit Office report. Uh, That report says the department's own worst-case scenario was a £13 billion gap, although that's over 10 years. So there are still hard spending choices to be made here in the upcoming integrated review. Old technology is still going to have to be axed to help pay for the new. All right, James Hurst, thank you for that. Well, BFBS's Laura Macon-Isherwood asked the chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee, the Conservative MP Tom Tugendhat, for his response to the news. I think this is really important. Look, this is a moment of massive uh, global flux. Uh, various things have caused it. We've just spoken about China, which is one. COVID is another. Uh, and, of course, uh, huge transformations in technology mean that the world is in uh, a period of change, the like of which we simply haven't seen Uh, really for a generation since the end of the Cold War, perhaps. And so I think this is one of those moments when the UK really has to invest, because whatever is decided now, while the metal is hot, if you like, will become uh, a a fixed hole uh, as the metal cools in the years to come. We'll have to live with whatever that result is. So we really must make sure we influence, shape, uh, and do our bit with allies to make sure that the resulting uh, shape of the uh, international community is one that not only uh, supports our interests, but promotes our values, those of liberty and uh, democracy. How critical is it for the Ministry of Defence to have a multi-year settlement in this situation? Can it cope on just, you know, one year at a time, as it was rumoured to be having faced or being faced with? It's absolutely crucial. And I think we've got to pay tribute to the Prime Minister on this, to have, who has realised uh, very clearly that a multi-year settlement is exactly what we need, because what we need is... We don't just need to maintain the kit we've got. We actually need to upgrade. And in that upgrade, we can transform Britain. So the the upgrading of our our naval capability, for example, can transform our alliances if we have a solid, predictable three, four year time horizon. We can change the way we build ships. We can therefore change the way that they are costed. And we can also share that technology and cheaper cost with allies and friends around the world, changing the nature of our alliances. And that's why this matters so much. It's all about transformation. It's all about technology and it's all about partnership. And I think there's a huge moment to say thank you to the Prime Minister for realising that and for making a commitment at a very difficult time when next year's budget, crikey, it's never been so unpredictable uh, with the effects that we're seeing in COVID. This is a very, very big vote of confidence in the armed forces and in defence. And uh, I look forward to uh, my former colleagues and comrades in defence living up to that uh, promise and delivering. That was MP Tom Tugendhat there. For Labour, the Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy says this announcement signals a welcome and long overdue upgrade to Britain's defences after a decade of decline. Well, General Lord Dannett is the former Chief of the General Staff. I spoke to him earlier. Well, it's Good news for defence. Um, £16.5 billion over the next four years has to be good news. I mean, it sounds like an awful lot of money. Actually, it's only another, well, it brings the defence budget up to £41 billion a year, which is good. It's a 10% increase, but it doesn't solve all the problems, yet it will go quite a long way to solving many of the problems of underspending that the Ministry of Defence has had for quite some years now. You've been calling for a rise for some time. Is this spending enough to allow Defence Forces to undertake a generational modernisation programme in order to defend the UK and allies, as the government says? Yes, it is the largest investment uh, into defence since the end of the Cold War. So on that basis, it's very welcome. 
But I think one has to realise that we're starting from a base of underfunding and that there are many uh, gaps in the defence budget at the present moment. So on the one hand, this additional money has got to go into the existing programmes to make them affordable and realistic um, and produce capabilities there on time. And on the other hand, to go into new capabilities. And I think it's the issue of new capabilities that's got to be thought about very, very carefully. I mean, there's talk about artificial intelligence, cyber, that's fine. But when we start talking about getting into space, well, that's very expensive. So I think those sort of issues are going to have to be thought about very carefully um, and and not get too carried away with. Yeah, when you say that, um, there is this 13 billion black hole in the equipment budget. Is that your concern that some more traditional pieces of equipment will go by the wayside that will pay the price in order to develop other areas like space? And if so, where? Well, the equipment programme has been underfunded for a whole variety of reasons for quite some time. So this additional money must rebalance areas of the equipment programme. I mean, in the maritime area, for example, the aircraft carriers and the F-35Bs to fly off them have absorbed a huge amount of the Navy's budget. Um, well, that expenditure must continue. But the Type 31 frigate programme is very important as well. So I think additional money in the maritime area will help rebalance the kind of Navy that we're producing over the next five to ten years. The land environment has been significantly underfunded. So an injection of money into our land manoeuvre capability, upgrading the Challenger 2, upgrading the Warriors, all that is extremely important. And then, of course, in the traditional air environment, um, aircraft are extremely expensive. And the future aircraft system is under debate at the present moment. Big issues is the future fixed-wing aircraft going to be manned or going to be unmanned. Big issues, but they're very expensive issues. So forget the new technologies for the time being. The existing conventional technologies need to be further funded for starters. What is your fear, though? Do you feel that the existing traditional technologies will not be funded properly? I suppose my biggest fear is recognising the money won't go everywhere. One of the biggest expenditures in defence is on people. Where are most of the people? Most of the people are in the army. So once again, there is a danger that the size of the army could find itself being shrunk again. Um, Ten years ago, the army was over 100,000. Officially, it's 82,000 now, but realistically, it's somewhere in the upper 70s. Um, I wouldn't want to see the army go down any more, but there is a danger that if further savings have to be made in order to fund the equipment programmes over and above this extra 16.5 billion, we might find further pressure on manpower. I don't welcome that. So overall, I mean, this is being billed as the biggest investment in defence for 30 years. Overall, is this a, a cautious, welcome, cautious welcome from you? No, it's an enthusiastic welcome, but actually it's, it's two cheers rather than three cheers because we have been so underfunded for the last five plus years, five to ten years we've been underfunded. So this is good news, but it's not going to solve everything for everyone. Um, caution and common sense and detailed analysis has still got to be applied. At least it means that the service chiefs now know what their budget is for the next four years. So in the light of the integrated defence review that's coming to a conclusion, they know how to plan, they know where to put their money, and that will give us some much better outcomes for the future. So it's two chairs rather than three chairs.
Lord Dannett there. Well, with me now is Professor Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Hello, Paul. The four-year settlement does make the MOD a special case. It does give a longer time frame, as the government says, to tackle emerging threats and handle lengthy procurement processes for kit worth billions of pounds. I think I would take a rather different view. In, in broad terms, I think this is the wrong decision at the wrong time. And it really preempts any further rethinking about what we mean by security. We are in the middle of probably the biggest crisis that Britain has faced since 1945, the COVID-19 crisis. That bug has killed more people in Britain, more civilians in Britain, than were killed in the whole of the six years of the Second World War. And we're not even seeing that in the sort of guise as a security threat. In the longer term, it is abundantly clear now, we have this huge conference in Glasgow in just over a year's time, that the threat facing the worldwide community is climate breakdown. And that doesn't seem to appear in any of this. I think we're still thinking about this in old terms. My own view is that given the crisis we're in otherwise, it would have been sensible to go for a one-year or maybe a two-year continuation of the Ministry of Defence budget at more or less current levels, and then do the proper review in a couple of years' time. You say this, Paul, but I mean, making decisions on, on yearly budgets is almost impossible for defence, isn't it? And they do have to make difficult choices now and for years ahead because just the way the procurement process works. Just, just tell me how you think they'll be thinking about how they spend this money. I think that is a difficulty for them. I mean, you know, I teach regularly at Defence College, so I have a lot of contact with the military. And I'm only too well aware that if you look at all the different uh, audiences that I speak to, the military will think long term. And I mean, they're very much concerned with that. But the problem is that at present, we have a very difficult situation. And I've no question at all that if we can think this through and come up with better answers, then by all means, frame the military in the longer term. But I don't think we can do it now. The message that the government does want to send worldwide is that the UK is a player on the world stage. It does indeed. And I think the point here is what sort of player? As I said, the biggest single issue facing the entire global community is climate breakdown. And I think that is far more acknowledged than even five or 10 years ago, but that is the case. And what we're saying is that we're basically, we're still thinking old terms. Now, I must repeat, I do not think that this means the military don't have roles. I mean, for heaven's sake, they do. It's been a significant role on the logistics side in dealing with COVID-19. Uh, we know that we have um, a, a large RFA, which is over in the Caribbean, helping with hurricane relief. There are new tasks for the military as well. But what I'm saying is that we've really got to think this through. And frankly, there's very little evidence of that at the present time. Professor Paul Rogers, stay with us. And we'll be talking about that hurricane relief a little later in the programme. As we've been hearing, now officially categorised by NATO as an operational domain, space is growing in importance within UK defence. That's reflected in the development of Hermes, the new relocatable ground station and mission operations centre at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. Rosie Layden has this exclusive report. The Hermes ground station, locking on to an Earth observation satellite and downloading high-quality imagery captured from space. Dr Junaid Mir is the principal space scientist at DSTL. If some frontline command person wanted to know the area that they're going into, we can provide them with imagery information and more on what's in front of them. The more you, you dig into the understanding just how much we rely on space, Air Vice Marshal Harv Smith is the MOD's first ever director space. It pretty much underpins all of our 
high-end capability like F-35 and all of that uh, combat edge that gives us the operational advantage we enjoy over potential adversaries, all of which is enabled through space. Hermes represents the MOD's most significant investment in space infrastructure in the last two decades. The team at DSTL have built it with support and training from UK company Surrey Satellite Technology. Phil Brownett is the managing director. We build and manufacture uh, small satellites and it's that uh, heritage and operational use of satellites that we're able to bring to DSDL so that DSDL has that technical authority within the UK. While Britain may not have a $40 billion annual space budget to rival America, the UK does have some valuable niche capabilities. Air Vice Marshal Harve Smith again. Small satellite technology in low Earth orbit, and that's certainly an area of uh, great interest to, to me and to us in MOD, so that we can do intelligence gathering, surveillance, communications, um, etc., with just small satellites in a constellation where they're all speaking to each other through a very, uh, very modern optical and laser communication techniques. But as nations around the world grapple with dangers from kinetic and cyber-related attacks in space, Britain's space infrastructure needs resilience against enemy activity. Dr. Mike O'Callaghan is the space program manager at DSTL. If we're going to be increasing uh, the number of assets we have in space, we need to make sure that we can look after those in exactly the same way we would look after, you know, uh, tanks going around the battlefield or ships at sea. Last July, the Russian Defence Ministry released a video of a test launch for an anti-satellite missile system. Defending Britain's assets in space is also a key part of MOD research and development. We're seeing other state actors commit more and more nefarious activity in space. There's a multitude of different ways to threaten space-based assets. And a lot of that threat can actually come from Earth-based equipment. In a previous job, I was running the CAOC out in the Middle East for all of the counter-Desh missions in Syria and Iraq. And we saw there the Russians were, they had specific uh, land-based jammers that they were using to jam satellites that then subsequently jammed communications, they jammed GPS codes, so it made it difficult, made our weapons uh, work harder to deliver the precision that we expect from them. The Hermes ground station means the UK now has sovereign assets in a domain that gets more important every day. Rosie Layden reporting there. Now, the Pentagon has confirmed plans to bring almost half of all American troops in Afghanistan home by early next year. The announcement, which had been widely rumoured, will see 2,000 soldiers leave by January, just before President-elect Joe Biden takes office. The number of U.S. troops in Iraq will also fall from 3,000 to 2,500. The news was announced by the Acting Defence Secretary, Christopher Miller. I am formally announcing that we will implement President Trump's orders to continue our repositioning of forces from those two countries. By January 15, 2021, our forces, their size in Afghanistan will be 2,500 troops. Our force size in Iraq will also be 2,500 by that same date. The chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat, gave this reaction to the news. So this is uh, a big change, clearly, and uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has spoken out about it because uh, unilateralism in multilateral organisations is 
tricky. It doesn't make life easy for your partners. And for many of us who served there, I was there pretty much for four years. This is something that uh, we hope that we will be able to do together because only by working together are we going to be able to support the Afghan people and get the stability that the whole world needs out of that troubled country. Though he says the country's military is much better prepared than it was. The Afghan National Army, the Ordo-Emili, is now much more capable than it was uh, even a few years ago, let alone in 2005-06 when uh, I first came uh, across them. And it's, it's, a serious, it's got a serious military capability. It has uh, aviation. It has uh, some uh, light armour. You know, it, it, it's a genuine military force. It's credible and uh, well-led. It's able to defend the people of Afghanistan. Well, Sir William Patey is the former UK ambassador to Kabul. I asked him for his response to the news. Well, it's not unexpected. Uh, I mean, Donald Trump, uh, as part of his sort of America first uh, uh, philosophy, has always said he wanted to bring all the troops home and end the endless wars, as he said. So I suppose it's a, a last gasp for him. It's a bit unfortunate, and given the timing in Afghanistan because of the need to try and progress the peace talks and to get the Taliban to stop uh, fighting. But uh, I suppose uh, you know they'll just have to live with it. But some people thought President Trump would pull all troops out by Christmas, and he hasn't gone that far. Well, I think even he must know that that uh, would be a, a disaster. Uh, his uh, previous uh, a defence secretary who was recently sacked was against pulling any troops out at this stage and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was against it. So he's going against the professional uh, and military advice and even pulling out the troops he is at, at the moment. What do you think the consequences will be for UK troops? Well, it's going to pose some dilemma for the remaining NATO troops. I think the NATO is about 7,000 troops there in uh, in Afghanistan. It, it, it's obviously not just an American uh, contribution, it's a, a NATO contribution. So in many ways he's letting down NATO. But a lot of those troops rely on American uh, logistic support, security. Uh, so uh, it may mean that uh, some of the outlying NATO troops may have to withdraw. Yeah, you say he may be letting down NATO, but he's not letting down the American people to whom he's consistently said great nations do not fight endless wars. So he's fulfilling that promise. It depends whether the American people want to be secure. And the reason the troops are there is to prevent Afghanistan reverting to a haven for terrorism. They're not there solely for the Afghans. They're there for uh, their own security interests. Remember why all this started, the uh, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda, the Twin Towers coming down. It was a direct attack on US soil that led us into Afghanistan. So it's not simply, you know, as far as the American people concerned, you could argue that uh, they will be less secure if Afghanistan once again reverts to Taliban-controlled government using uh, uh, global terrorists. Yes, the US signed a peace deal with the Taliban, but the Afghan military and defence leaders have accused the Taliban of not doing enough to reduce violent attacks on government forces. How great is the danger, do you think, that the Taliban will gain more ground and fulfil what it wants, which is to take control of the country? Well, they control about 40% of the country at the moment. Clearly, the, if the prospect of American troops withdrawing completely in NATO will perhaps convince them that they don't need to negotiate and that they can fulfil their strategic goal of taking over Afghanistan without having to compromise in any way whatsoever. So this is likely to encourage them. It's likely to... They've never been uh, all that uh, keen on, on, on uh, compromising. 
So it may it may push a peace deal further down the road while maintaining the troops, supporting the Afghan security forces, who after all are doing the, the bulk of the fighting and the bulk of the security, and, uh, but providing them the sort of remnants of support is, is the least we can do, I think. That was Sir William Patey there. Well, with me still is Professor Paul Rogers. Uh, Paul, Christopher Miller, the acting US Defence Secretary, said that the decision was not irreversible and does not equate to a change in policy or objectives. What's your take? I think it's quite possible that Mr Biden or President-elect Biden will reverse it when he takes power. Uh, The reality is that the peace negotiations that have been going on in Doha uh, have not been very successful so far. There have been many delays. And while that has been going on, the Taliban has basically been playing quite a clever strategy. It substantially reduced the attacks on American forces. In fact, there have been very few over the last year or so, or indeed on NATO forces as a whole. But at the same time, it has stepped up attacks on the Afghan National Army and the broader Afghan security forces. So, in a sense, it wants the United States to withdraw. It would like NATO forces also to withdraw, because then it feels it would have a a free ride. The extraordinary thing is that the Taliban, as Sir William said, controls about 40% of the country... Last year, the US forces dropped more munitions in Afghanistan than they were doing at the height of the war 10 years ago. So it's in spite of that that the Taliban is, in fact, in this strong position. So I think what they're hoping, it's along the lines that Sir William was saying at the end, what is they are hoping is that the Americans will go, uh, and in a way they'll help them go by keeping the pressure off them, But in the longer term, they will then be in a position to, I don't think, ever take control of Afghanistan, but certainly have a very big role in governance. And there are clear signs coming from the American military media that their connections with al-Qaeda and to some extent even with ISIS are, if anything, stronger than they were a year ago. And of course, not forgetting Iraq, the chair of the Defence Committee, Tobias Elwood, says there's still an awful amount of danger presented by extremist groups. Well, there was a recent report which suggested that uh, ISIS, or AQI as it used to be called, still has something like 10,000 active or semi-active paramilitary forces in Syria and Iraq. It has simply gone on, not gone away. And within Iraq, it is benefiting from the uh, political uncertainty that we have at the present time. So there again, uh, it's going to be a rather checkered future. Professor Paul Rogers, good to speak to you. Thanks for your time today. Now, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary Ship RFA Argus is supporting relief efforts in Honduras after tens of thousands of people have been displaced by Hurricane Ita. The death toll in the country in Central America may never be known, with reports that a second hurricane, Iota, has caused more flooding to areas already underwater. I got through yesterday on a ship to shore and spoke to the commander of the UK's task group in the Caribbean, Commander Kate Muir, on RFA Argus, and asked her what they had learnt about the impact of the hurricanes. That's an interesting question. So we conducted some airborne surveillance a few days ago after Hurricane Eta's impact. We had to leave station to avoid Hurricane Iota coming in and have now literally just launched helicopters this morning to go out and conduct that damage assessment. Uh, So we don't have the data yet. They're they're on task. They're having a look at the areas that they uh, baselined a few days ago to understand the extent of the damage there. And they also understand very clearly what normal looks like from a few days ago uh, and where the changes have occurred. And a few days ago, how bad was it looking? So the area we looked at is quite close to the Honduras-Nicaragua border. It didn't look um, like there was a huge level of damage, which is good news. Uh, It's quite a remote area, 
so they were very worried about it and there also appeared to be very limited mobile phone activity there which was quite unusual so it looks like the cell uh, networks in that area may be down it's quite a low-lying area there was some flooding uh, but because it's low-lying the housing in the area all appears to be built on stilts so they're used to flooding they're used to storm surges and that has definitely helped them in some ways and RFA Argus has been in the region now for eight months. It's part of the UK's regular presence in the Caribbean. But she in particular was deployed because originally she was there to help British overseas territories with the pandemic. Argus was always due to come on to ask into the region um, for hurricane season. She deployed, however, you're absolutely right, a little bit earlier um, because of the uncertainty on what COVID was going to do to the UK overseas territories in the Caribbean. Uh, so Argus deployed with a little bit more aviation than normal, a little bit earlier than normal, um, and was ready on scene to support if the overseas territories did require that support. Uh, however, the territories have handled the COVID crisis remarkably well. Uh, they've become quite resilient, and you see if you have a look at the COVID numbers across the UKOTs, that they have got them down into a pretty low and pretty steady position. So in, in that respect, Argus's support, whilst available, was not required. And in the last eight months, she's also been involved in seven drugs busts in the region, now helping in one of the busiest seasons with tropical storms in the Caribbean. Uh, fair to say it's been a busy, challenging deployment? It's certainly been a very busy deployment, a, a very challenging one, um, but that's absolutely what everyone is here to do, is to provide that support to counter-narcotics and to um, disaster relief. I should also mention that, that part of those um, drugs busts also came from the other ship within the task group, which is HMS Medway. She's uh, an offshore patrol vessel based now permanently in the Caribbean, um, delivering support to overseas territories, largely through counter-narcotics. So between the two ships, they've provided that success. It's been busy for them, um, but that makes it hugely rewarding. That was Commander Kate Muir there on RFA Argus. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and all my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. While you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye.